This is episode 161 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Generation of Functional and Mature Beta Cells with Priya Iwarima. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Daylon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com, where you'll find a summary of each episode, including links to all the research papers discussed in this episode. Today, we have Priya Iwarima from the University of British Columbia on the podcast to talk about her research converting stem cells into insulin-producing beta cells. We've also got our roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming right up. But first, do you want to learn about the latest techniques and protocols to successfully derive and maintain high-quality, very important, high-quality, human-induced pluripotent stem cells from somatic cells and their differentiation towards specialized cell types? Register for a two-day or three-day hands-on training course by Stem Cell Technologies. Explore your differentiation topics at www.stemcell.com training. Yeah, guys, check that out. And we're on to the roundup. I'm starting with the hematopoiesis story. I've taken a break, you know, because of fatigue, not on my part, but on everyone else's <laughs> part with the hematopoiesis. But I'm coming back because this is a hot story coming out of the Camargo lab at Harvard. You know, it's about tracking and live imaging. That's why I love it. It's hematopoiesis and also imaging, two things that I love. And it's live imaging, which is, which is extra special. Um, you know, the state of the art pretty much before this paper was uh, transplantation-based tracking. You know, if you wanted to image cells in the hematopoietic system, you had to label them and then transplant them, okay? And typically this is done in the calvarium, you know, at the, in the best case, at the most state of the art, which is in the, like in the skull. You could look in through these cranial windows and see what goes on in the hematopoietic system. But the problem, like I said, is it requires this engraftment. You know, you irradiate the recipient to, you know, ablate the bone marrow microenvironment. Uh, and then you feed in these cells that you've altered and labeled and you watch what happens, right? So this is great for engraftment biology. There's a lot you can learn there in these models. But the behavior of the stem progenitor cells in this context is not, you know, probably, probably not going to mirror, you know, physiological steady state. It's going to, it's going to reflect this massive insult, right? And this engraftment. Uh, so you have um, a lot of reporter lines too in terms of visualizing these cells. And there's a lot of these hematopoietic stem cell putative reporter lines in mice that allow for identification in, in bone marrow um, following like tissue clearing. There's all these protocols that have been de developed for clearing tissue. We really come to really high level resolution of these niches, um, but the reporters are still not exactly hematopoietic stem cell specific. They're not exclusive in hematopoietic stem cell. Uh, and so owing to all these difficulties, there's still a lot of uncertainty about the exact localization and behavior of hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells. And even less is known about the niche, right? That maintains these hematopoietic stem cells in the quiescent state or activates them. There's all this endosteal, the bone marrow, the nesting positive cells, the stroma, the mesenchymal, the list goes on and on. There's a lot of debate about hematopoiesis generally. It's been going on for decades, okay? So to address this with some degree of finality, Fernando Camargo and a bunch of collaborators, um, they 
developed a, a novel mouse to allow for observation of hematopoietic stem cells. And it was a dual genetic strategy that was pretty cool. I don't want to belabor it, but the bottom line is they looked at this myelodysplastic syndrome 1 gene that's really highly enriched in these long-term repopulating hematopoietic stem cells. They put a GFP in there, but the GFP was flanked with LOXP sites, and then they had another uh, genetic alteration in these mice. They crossed it with these FLT3 Cree mice. Now, this is a gene that's activated very early as the cells differentiate. So it activates a Cree that then excises that GFP. So the bottom line is, is that these in these mice, the long-term hematopoietic stem cells are labeled GFP, and as soon as they start differentiating, that GFP gets knocked out of the genome, right? So it's lost. So this is a really exclusive label. Uh, and they made this so that it was uh, com compatible with this intravital imaging approaches in the calvarium in this, these cranial windows. Uh, and they showed a ton of stuff with this tool. It's what I love this study because, you know, at the base, science is really about observation and, and the root of science, all the pivotal observations made back in the day just by looking at a thing. But now there's almost nothing left, and we got to throw all these tools at the system to gain some insight. This is old school. Just looking at the thing and the amount of insight that you could glean just by looking at this system, I think, was tremendous. Here's to start, and there's more that I'm not going to mention, but what they showed is, one, these long-term HSCs, they reside close to both the sinusoidal blood vessels and the endosteal surface, Okay. Um, this is in contrast to multipotent progenitor cells, which show greater variation in distance from the endosteal niche and are more likely to be associated with transition uh, zone vessels. Um, they also found that these LTHSCs, they're not in the bone marrow niches with the deepest hypoxia, which was part of the dogma. Instead, they're found in hypoxic environments that are really similar to those occupied by the multipotent progenitor cells. Also, they showed that these LTHSCs, they're really immobile at steady state. Um, but when activated, they do different things. Some of them go crazy, become modal, and go and colonize some other thing and expand, presumably. Others, they expand clonally and locally within these spatially restricted domains. Uh, and this expansion of the hematopoietic stem cells is almost exclusively, exclusively found in bone marrow cavities that have a lot of remodeling activity. Okay, so this is a ton of insight gained from this. And the takeaway really is that there's all this heterogeneity in the bone marrow microenvironment, and most notably that it's linked to this bone turnover. So I love it. It's a story that just by looking, and I oversimplify saying by just by looking because it involves a lot of tools, but by looking at this system, there's a lot you could learn. My only problem with this paper, Arun, is that, mm -hmm. get this, this paper was submitted in June. 2018 okay and this wow. is the problem i think which is the field right now at the highest level in these super high impact journals that you got stuff in review for years and by the time it comes out i'm still totally you know gobsmacked by this story and and uh impressed but you know you wonder if a little bit of luster uh has been lost on a story like this after all these many many months it's an obscene amount of data. It's really, really impressive. And, you know, seeing is believing, right? Even though, you know, this was in review for a long, long time, you can't argue with the results like what you're saying. Seeing is believing. You know, I'm a big fan of reporter lines. I've made some myself in the IPS system. 
You know, it's interesting. I'm I'm not a blood guy, but here I thought we had characterized hematopoietic stem cells really in depth, you know? You think about all the different cell surface markers that are out there for sorting, fact sorting, identifying different HSCs and their derivatives. And here you're saying there's like an entirely new subset of HSCs and they're in different locations. So what's next? I think characterization, right? This is more of an observational study, right? They're showing where these things are residing. So it's probably a matter of like what single cell characterization and sequencing and that sort of thing, right? Absolutely. I think it's, you know, there's some single cell in this story for sure, because there's single cell in everything. But uh, I think what you're saying is to dig deep into these populations to see uh, what the, the subsets are, right, as they're mobilized. And it's, yeah. it's what you say, really, I think it's home, though, for, for something that's been studied the longest. It's, it's interesting how much we have to learn. And that's shown in this one story. Just by looking at it, we see how much we have yet to learn. Definitely. So moving from the East Coast back out here to the West Coast, I'm going to talk about iPSC-derived dopaminergic neurons for modeling Parkinson's disease. And full disclosure here, this is actually coming out of uh, Clive Svensson's lab here at the Regenerative Medicine Institute at Cedars-Sinai, which is actually where I'm located. I've seen this project kind of grow over the last few months since I've been here. And in reality, this project was, it's been going on for more than five plus years. So it's cool to finally see it come out in nature medicine. So the title of this paper is IPS modeling of young onset Parkinson's disease reveals a molecular signature of disease and novel therapeutic candidates. First authors are Alex LaPerley, Sam Sances, and Neuroducer, who are here in Clyde Svensson's lab. So we know that Parkinson's is, you know, obviously a debilitating condition. It's been around, you know, it's only increasing in prevalence. At least 500,000 people in the U.S. are actually diagnosed with Parkinson's and the number is, is going up. So it occurs when brain neurons that actually make dopamine, a substance that coordinates muscle movement, actually become impaired or die. And we know about the symptoms, right, which actually get worse over time, unfortunately. So they include the slow, slowness of movement, rigid muscles, tremors, and a loss of balance. And unfortunately, the exact cause of neuronal failure is unclear. And of course, there's no known cure. And in, there's a subset of Parkinson's that's not really talked about as much. It's the idea of young onset Parkinson's. And this kind of changes the idea that, oh, Parkinson's is a disease associated with with aging and the elderly. The about 10% of all Parkinson's patients actually develop Parkinson's between 21 and 50. So, you know, in relatively early in life. And so what Clive's lab, you know, Dr. Svensson's lab was actually hoping to do was to make iPSCs from people who had young onset Parkinson's disease. And just knowing <laughs> the work that went into this, it was a ton of different iPS lines that they created. You know, I think like 10 plus 15 plus IPS lines from controls and also people who had young onset Parkinson's disease. The important thing here is um, there wasn't really a, an underlying genetic condition that was associated with the young onset Parkinson's disease. So they basically just went out and recruited anybody who had young onset and made IPSCs from those individuals. From there, they differentiated the cells into dopaminergic neurons, which 
it's a, it's a tricky differentiation process. As somebody who does IPS cardiomyocyte differentiation, that only takes a couple of weeks. Dopaminergic differentiation, it's it's not easy. It's you know two month long process. You got to do some additional selection, purification, and make sure these cells are really you know what they're supposed to be. So they made dopaminergic neurons from all of these lines and then analyzed the functions of the neurons in the control and the young onset Parkinson's. And what they're able to show is there are two key abnormalities that they found in these dopaminergic uh, neurons. One was an accumulation of alpha-synuclein, which is actually uh, pretty well associated with various forms of Parkinson's disease. And two was the idea that um, they actually saw malfunctioning lysosomes, which are, of course, the structures that act as trash cans for the cell to break down and dispose of proteins. And these malfunctioning lysosomes are maybe why alpha-synuclein is actually building up. The next thing they did was to, now that they've identified the phenotype in their iPSC model, they actually tried to reverse it, and they actually found that one drug, PEP005, which is actually already approved by the FDA, uh, reduced the elevated levels of alpha-synuclein in not only in the IPS model, but also in mice who had the uh, same, you know, similar phenotype. So the drug also countered another abnormality that they found in the neurons, which is elevated versions of protein kinase C. And the next step, of course, is to figure out how you can use this drug, PEP005, which is actually currently available in a gel, to reverse young onset Parkinson's and maybe even Parkinson's in general. So it's a cool study, and obviously I'm biased because this is something that's coming out of the RMI here at Cedar sinai You know, I've seen the tremendous amount of work that's gone into this. I think it's a cool study for a, a few different reasons. Um, one, the fact that you can actually see this young onset Parkinson's phenotype, this accumulation of alpha-synuclein, you can see it in these, even in our immature iPS-derived dopaminergic neurons, right? I keep on harping of the point of immaturity of like almost every single week, right? But the fact is, even in these immature cells, you can see this accumulation phenotype, and they're able to use that to their advantage to actually identify a drug that might be able to reverse that phenotype. So that's one thing. And the other thing is this idea of drug repurposing, which is something we've talked about a few times, I think, with a couple of guests. If you have a drug that's already been approved by the FDA and it's showing to have like a helpful phenotype in, you know, you know, alleviating a phenotype like what you're seeing here with the PEP005, then it's it's really easy to to repurpose it. You know, you don't have to go through that lengthy process of FDA approval again. You just use it for a different indication. So I think it's a, it's a useful paper. It's diving deep into a really devastating disease in Parkinson's, which doesn't have a whole lot of, you know, treatment options. And maybe, maybe, depending on how this PEP005 works out, we might have a new one in the future. Yeah, we can hope. The, um, the other thing, and you mentioned it, it's they, they, there's no genetic basis. So it's impressive. I guess you need to have a lab like Clive. And you, of course, you can call him Clive. Because he's your boy, <laughs> but I call him Dr. Svensson. I but, just got uh, here, so I, got, I was like, should I call him Clive? Should I call him Dr. Svensson? Yeah, you, did, safe, you did right? both. You did both. Um, but yeah, it seemed kind of risky for for anybody. But I guess a big lab like that, you can take the risk because there is no genetic basis, right? Now you don't hear as much anymore about um, the disease model, genetic disease, and in, in IPS lines because I feel like a lot of the 
the genetic diseases, the low-hanging fruit have been run through. And now it's these riskier things where it's a constellation of genes, you know, that are associated with the risk or there's no clear genetic link, but maybe it's familial, but it's not like, you know, one-to-one gene to pathology. So very impressive in the high risk. And uh, I guess it panned out. The other question that I have for you, maybe you can address this or you can ask your good friend, Clive. Um, what's the, is there an obstacle here in terms of the BBB? Is that the, the reason why this drug's not just patients just aren't like taking it off label right now because, um, the drug won't penetrate or is that not an issue with the pharma of this thing? Do you know? Yeah, I'm actually not hundred percent sure, but we do have systems in the lab that can actually, you know, interrogate that directly. We've got these BBB blood brain barrier and organ chips. And I think actually that's something that we're testing right now is, you know, introducing this PEP005 onto these, you know, dual organ chips that actually have the the neural layer and also the blood and brain microvascular endothelial cells. Um, so that's so that's something we can definitely test in an in vitro system, but you're absolutely right. That's a big limitation for drugs that are hoping to target the brain, right? You have to deal with this blood-brain barrier, and it's tough to get it get stuff across. Well, you get your name on that paper, my friend, because it's going to be high impact. <laughs> you talked about uh, maturation, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about that peripherally. I got a story here. This is about the lung. We've been talking about the lung a bit in the last few weeks about cystic fibrosis, about these kind of alveolar, uh, epithelial, progenitors, all that stuff. The lung's hot nowadays. Uh, and this is a story about the lung in single-cell seek, of course, which is also hot, but it adds another wrinkle. You know, the, the bottom line here and the aim for, for both just basic developmental biology as well as therapeutic application of stem cells is differentiation, right, from an embryonic state to a more mature state, right? To mature these cells along these pathways that lead to functional adult cells and tissues, right? Um, and there's been a million, myriad uh, stepwise differentiation protocols for human pluripotent stem cells. And they're all designed to do the same thing, to go through these developmental milestones and to give the right signal and drive them along this path, right? Uh, but you know, it's it's a challenge. There's a lot of challenges. Well, the reason we do it in the first place is because this this the real tissue is inaccessible, right? We want to study human development um, in vitro, but the problem is is that in vitro we, it's difficult to recapitulate that process uh, perfectly. Um, and the whole point there is to get real tissues. You know, the correlates of what goes on in vivo, not just for therapeutics, but also for disease modeling. Uh, but even the most optimized differentiation protocols, there's, there's a bit of a slurry there. There's, I don't think there's any one protocol, maybe neural, maybe neural, because it's a default thing where you can shut everything down. But I don't think there's even neural. It's tough to get something that's pure. You know, usually you get a more complex and more heterogeneous mix of cells that are not only of varying fates, um, and even like germ lineages, but also within the same fate, they can be of different maturation states, right? And that's what we've been talking about over and over over the weeks. We're getting these cells that are immature. In the case of this uh, Parkinson's thing that you were talking about there, it's cool. But in uh, mm -hmm. a lot of other cases, it, it's not. And really, we just want to get a, a handle on it. We want to understand what's going on there, right? Because um, these complex heterogeneous mixes of cells it's that lack of resolution that limits the clinical re relevance or at least the usefulness of uh the the, the derivatives of pluripotent stem cells it's, it's a challenge um and this is not really better exemplified than in the lung right 
So in the lung, you have a lot of different cell types. And in trying to recapitulate the cell types in the lung by differentiation of pluripotent stem cells, you have to do 20 weeks worth of gestational time. So pretty much half a gestation you have to recapitulate. It's a long time. It's tough. A lot can go wrong there. Enter Daryl Cotton and uh, a lot of investigators like him. He's at BU uh, Medical Center, uh, medical school, but he uh, and others like him, they've shortened, abbreviated these differentiated protocols to as short as two weeks in vitro, which is a major milestone. But even when you purify these cells to get the progenitors, which are these NKX 2.1 cells, these cells are, are meant to be the like lineage specific progenitors. They're still a little bit plastic. They drift in both within the lung lineage, but also they drift to other non-lung cell types, right? So there's a lot we need to do here. There's detailed mapping of the developmental ontogeny, ontology of these cells. Um, through their progenitor cell intermediates. It's a very, and not just in the lung, but in all different organ systems and tissues, it's become a real, uh, you know, there's a mandate now. It's become a huge priority. Everyone's going for it. And a lot of them are using single cell seek, right? And single cell seek can, can address it. But while uh, it can address it, it really provides more of like a snapshot, right? It can only imply the kind of parent progeny relationships that we're going for in the classic lineage hierarchy. So it's not enough, right? So enter Daryl Cotton and his collaborators, which include, by the way, Fernando Camargo, Camargo, who uh, I just talked about with medical research. So he's everywhere. He's everywhere. He's yes, everywhere. He is. The man is very busy. Um, so they did single, single cell seek, of course. And, you know, I'm going to go quick now, but they did single cell seek with this wrinkle. They did lentiviral barcoding. And that's the key here, this lentiviral barcoding, which has been in play for decades. You know, this was applied early by Lior Lemish Ihor Lemishka, rest in peace, to figure out the lineage hierarchy and hematopoietic system. And that system, you just pretty much transduce a, a, a founder population with lentivirus. It integrates randomly. That point of integration is going to be clonally inherited. So you can see the, the parent progeny relationships in there. And what they find is that there's these bifurcating cell fate trajectories from these primordial lung progenitors that differentiate into some of them forming these alveolar uh, epithelial type 2 cells, the target cell, but others become non-lung endodermal cell fates. And then they develop this thing, which is crazy sounding, called continuous state hidden Markov model. Maybe you know what that is. But they use that to show what's going on, why. And they attribute it to, quote, over-exuberant Wnt responses that induce some of these NKX 2.1 progenitors to lose that lung fate and drift. Um, but you know, most importantly of all is that once you get over that initial plasticity, um, you, can, you can get a population that won't drift, uh, they have a stable phenotype and near limitless self-renewal capacity. So my takeaway here from this is that one, it's providing a finer resolution of, of the system, but also the cells that may be therapeutically useful. Um, and also, I, I love this idea of taking an old tool that kind of, which is, was a hack, and, and incorporating it with this newfangled tool of single cell seek to provide another dimension, this dimension of time and, and the personal history of these cells. And I anticipate that this exact approach is going to become very widely used, and we're going to see it in a lot of other papers, because that's the one thing that I think is left to see in these single cell seek uh, plots, you know, we can get the ATAC-seq, we can get the transcriptome, we can even get the kind of epigenetics here. 
now we need to see what the history of these cells are and we can tell a real story. Yeah, there's a couple of things that really stuck out for this, uh, for me, for this paper. One was um, something that you had mentioned. This was a two-week-long differentiation protocol. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, what? Yeah, that's that's not bad at all. I mean, there's a whole range of differentiation protocols, right, in terms of their, the difficulty of the process. Like I talked about the the dopaminergic differentiation, which takes like a month and a half. I think the 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 worst, or I don't know the best, <laughs> whatever your perspective is, was uh, I think there's like an IPS keratinocyte differentiation protocol that I saw in grad school. That was like six months long, Yikes. something like that, right? I don't know. I, I get it. I get it. You know, then you have to simplify things because people don't want to do these differentiation protocols and just be in lab forever. And, you know, that's like the only thing you're doing is just differentiating cells. But the point is, how realistic would a two-week-long differentiation protocol be in terms of recapitulating in vitro, in vivo development? Do you think it's good enough? Not realistic. It would be my, I mean, a priori, I would just say, what are you talking about? You can't, you know, take 10% of the gestational time and get the same endpoint. But, you know, I guess that depends on your perspective, like you just alluded to. Do we want something that is the closest to the end product from a pragmatic standpoint, you know, pragma pragmatically, what's going to work in vivo or what's going to look more like, most like the organ or tissue or cell for disease modeling? Or do, are we really invested in the path, you know, in the cells having the same trajectory as their in vivo correlate? And I, I think maybe you could argue for both sides of that. I'm not arguing for anything. I'm just saying, wow, <laughs> it's a pretty impressive combination of uh, old meets new and uh, I, uh, I, uh, I'm still waiting to see someone cure CF now. I mean, we've been covering these lung stories week to week to week and now I really, I'm, I'm thinking what is the insurmountable obstacle to replacing disease lung tissue? I can't see it, but I'm not a lung guy, so someone will have to, have to learn me up on that. Hey man, as somebody who does a lot of differentiations, I am not complaining about a two-week-long differentiation <laughs> protocol. Okay, I will take that any day over a six-month-long keratinocyte differentiation. Speaking of differentiation, organoid differentiation is actually, you know, it's getting easier. I think Dr. Watry mentioned that their differentiation process takes, you know, up to uh, six months to a year. So, oh man, if you can't figure it out by now, it's a touchy subject for me. So, <laughs> so differentiation in general, there's work to be done. So speaking of organoids, the last paper I'm going to talk about is coming from, once again, the lab of Arnold Kriegstein. And once again, the first author is Aparna Baduri, who actually just had a cell stem cell paper that we talked about. Uh, it was an, another organoid paper, basically introducing glioblastoma cells into brain organoids and seeing how they can engraft and take a, you can take a look at uh, glioblastoma in an in vitro context in that way. So Aparna has another paper, and this time it's in Nature. It's, uh, it's titled, Cell Stress in Cortical Organoids Impairs Molecular Subtype Specification. I think this is a phenomenal paper because you're basically comparing brain organoids to the real thing, and you want to see how close they actually are to the real brain. You know, we have we've had guests here in the past who are doing organoid differentiation, brain organoid differentiation. I mentioned Alison Moatre, right? 
And there's this thought that, oh, these things are becoming pretty advanced. They're becoming more brain-like. And I think Dr. Mwatri actually mentioned that they may be able to develop some very early preliminary uh, neural circuits. So the reality is this paper from the Kriegstein lab is kind of disputing that. And so we know that, of course, brain organoids are these amalgamations of you know brain tissue that grow, are grown in the lab. But these folks are actually saying, hold on, you know, we don't want to make that jump yet. We don't want to say that they're that advanced. So they're showing that widely used organoid models can even fail to re, you know, re replicate even the most basic features of brain development and organization, and much less that complex circuitry that I was talking about, right, that you need to actually model complex brain diseases. So of course, you know, people have branded organoids, unfortunately, as these brains in a dish, quote unquote, but they're showing that this is probably just a giant exaggeration. And so how do they do it? Their, their lab, as I mentioned, has an ongoing effort to actually map the gene expression programs that actually are orchestrating brain development. And it's cool because they actually, um, they're comparing their organo differentiation to samples of real, normal human uh, brain tissue, which is, again, led by Aparna Baduri, who is a postdoc in the Kriegstein lab. And the lab is actually aiming to make this genetic atlas of brain development that they're going to make available as a, a resource for comparing brain development to actually what goes awry in brain diseases such as autism. The problem was when they were comparing this data from the developing brain to the lab's organoid models, they discovered that there is a pretty significant difference. So there are differences when it comes to the neural circuitry that's actually expressed in these, in these organoids. So they measure gene expression in over 200,000 individual cells. We were talking about this. This is a, an incredible amount of single cell data that they showed here. 200,000 individual cells extracted from 37 different organoids, which were generated using three different differentiation pr protocols and four different starting cell lines. A lot of work. And then they actually compare the gene expression to what they saw in, again, around 200,000 uh, actual brain cells from developing human brains. And they were able to show that instead of differentiating normally into the brain's distinct you know, cell types, the organoid cells actually had what they called an identity crisis. So they expressed a mixed bag of genes that are actually found in different types of cells. So at first, the organoids were developing structured rosettes that actually resembled some features of the developing brain. But then the rosettes kind of dissolved into this mixture of intermingled cells. So they're able to identify the, the major broad categories of cell types, but not the, not the normal diversity that you would actually find in the true brain. Next, they wanted to make sure the results actually extended to other common ways of making organoids outside of their labs. So they compared single cell gene expression data from eight different organoid differentiation protocols published in the literature. Again, looking at over 200,000 individual cells to their atlas of uh, the normal gene expression in the developing brain. And in every single case, the published organoids had the same lack of appropriate development into the distinct cell types that you actually want to see in the brain. Mm. 
So in addition to their messed up, confused developmental programming, the organoid models also actually had a high level of cell stress genes, which controls the, the cell's response to you know, harmful environmental conditions, such as like hypoxia, for example. So these organoids and the cells in the organoids are stressed out. And what they actually did uh, to reverse this was that they took their organoid cells and introduced them in vivo into, into mouse models, and the stress actually went down. So the organoid cellular stress fell to normal, normal levels, and the normal developmental programs began to reassert themselves. And then the other way around, when they took early developing neural tissue and tried to grow it in their organoids, those neural tissues became more stressed. So this is telling us that there's something off. These cells are kind of stressed out. Um, a cool way to reverse that is to introduce these organoids into an in vivo context and let the in vivo system actually kind of rescue the organoid phenotype. So they're not brains in a dish. They're not brains in a dish. <laughs> in contrast to a lot of what you know, popular science has been saying, there's still a long way to go when it comes to improving the neural circuitry in, in these organoids. I think they're still definitely useful, don't get me wrong. And you know, even Aparna's earlier paper is showing that you can you know, you know, keep glioblastoma cells long-term in these brain organoids. I think that's useful. So there are definitely useful applications for brain organoids, but calling them a brain in a dish and modeling circuitry, that's kind of problematic. Yeah, brains in a dish, mini brains, there's all these... Uh... There's all these clever names that I feel like were were figured out by the editors. You know, the editors love to put a name to things. Um, but you know, it, it, I still wonder. So I remember when when we were talking to Alison, I thought because I think scientists are always very reserved to say, you know, they they hate to be like, yeah, this is just like the real thing. And I remember being like, huh, when Alison was like, yeah, we need to start talking about these these brains and just having thoughts. And I, I, I thought maybe that was him genuinely, you know, believing that it's a, 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 there's a truth there. And I think, you know, I, I, of course, he, he believes the data. But I think a part of him also is just getting ahead of it. You know, when he, they had that conference where they had to, mm. to have a discussion about the bioethics of these mini brains, brains in addition, whatnot. I think a, and, and a savvy scientist nowadays is just like, you know what? This conversation is going to be had with or without me. I'm not saying they you know, they can't possibly have, you know, thoughts or brainwaves or whatever. So I might as well get into the discussion to be a part of it rather than have it be hijacked by the pseudoscience. And I like this discourse too, because it's showing that, you know, yeah, there's a little bit of a media hijacking of this idea of, you know, the organoids yeah. being brains in addition. Let's maybe temper that before people start taking that into a dark place. But I guess my question to, to you, Arun, because you read a bit deeper into this, is that they must have also compared when you said they went into the literature for those 200,000 cells they must have gone into Alison's data set or does he not does he have single cell seek for his his stuff yeah. okay so yeah, yeah. They, they had yeah, it, they were comparing and hit they're saying his there was an identity crisis that was that was still in play for his nine month 10 month organoids as well yeah yeah, I mean, I think, you know, no matter what differentiation protocol you use, you're kind of getting to the same point. You're having these issues of you're not getting exactly the right diversity of cells that you would want to get in the developing brain. So, and no, don't get me wrong. I totally agree with you. I think uh, Allison was actually kind of getting 
kind of maybe predicting the future a little bit, right? Maybe mm -hmm. down the road when we figure out issues when it comes to vascularization and all that, maybe we will get to that point of enhanced you know, neural circuitry. So I, I think it's important to talk about these like you know these ethical issues before before they even happen right i think it's it's not there's nothing wrong with talking about it absolutely and i think i mean i love the fact that this, the hard science is really addressing it in a clear and transparent way and i mean come on aparna killing it uh just two major high impact papers in as many weeks it's impressive but you know pretty much uh, uh uh, the norm now with the young scientists. We're going to get a little glimpse of that with our guest today, Priya. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about stem cell. I got a message from them. If you guys are interested in learning about differentiating pluripotent stem cells to pancreatic progenitors, then you should hear doctors Ray Dunn and Jamie Trott discuss the differentiation of pluripotent stem cells to insulin-producing islet-like cells in their webinar, Understanding Pancreatic Development and Diabetes using patient-specific iPS cells. During the talk, they described generating pancreatic progenitor cells from pluripotent stem cells, differentiating these cells to the endocrine lineage, and how these cells can be used to better understand pancreatic development and diabetes. Watch the full webinar at www.stemcell.com slash done webinar. That's done with two N's, D-U-N-N webinar. Have a look at that. Okay, folks, this week on the interview segment of the Stem Cell Podcast, we have with us Priye Iwarima from the University of British Columbia. Priye is a PhD student in Dr. Timothy Kiefer's lab at the UBC School of Biomedical Engineering. She got her MSc in neurobiology from Simon Fraser University, as well as her bachelor's in science from Simon Fraser. Priye's PhD project is focused on, one, developing and optimizing a differentiation protocol for creating insulin-producing cells derived from stem cells that could be used as a potential therapy for type 1 diabetes, and two, optimizing process parameters to facilitate the large-scale manufacturing of these cells with the ultimate goal of creating a functional therapy for diabetes. Priye, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so why don't we jump right into it? Why don't you give us an overview of what you're working on these days in your own words? Okay, well, in my lab, we are primarily a diabetes-focused lab, and my work is using stem cells to try to generate these insulin-producing cells with the ultimate goal of having something that could be a potential cell therapy for type 1 diabetes. Now, for most of us that are familiar with type 1 diabetes, this is characterized by chronic hyperglycemia. So you've got elevated blood sugar levels that is as a result of the partial or total destruction of beta cells, which are the cells that secrete insulin in your body and they're found in islets. So from the point of view of cell replacement therapy, the Edmonton protocol, which was developed you know, by Shapiro Group in Edmonton showed that they could actually isolate cadaveric donor islets in a very specific way and then take these islets, infuse them into the portal vein of a patient that is living with type 1 diabetes, and effectively they were able to normalize the blood glucose levels after that implantation. So that was really a seminal point 
in the field where we were able to show or they were able to show that we can in fact reverse type 1 diabetes if we supply these cells back into the patient. Now, um, some of the limitations with that just being widely used is that we rely on cadaveric donor islets, and there is a limited supply in comparison to the number of people that are living with type 1 diabetes. There is also the need for chronic immunosuppression, and so those are some of the things that we are considering while we want to use stem cells as a potential cell source instead and then try to differentiate these stem cells into these insulin producing cells. Hmm. Yeah, we're going to come back around to uh, that end of the research. But just before we do, you know, it's rare that we get a, a student perspective on this show. We usually have these high powered PIs and, you know, they're great. But sometimes I get bored with amazing world changing <laughs> science. And I want to hear about the science that's coming up. Um, so we're trying to capitalize on the unique insight you can provide right here. At least as I remember it, the student experience was, you know, for me, it was about like unleashing your imagination. It was about these high risk, but and ambitious ideas. And when I was in training, human pluripotent stem cells were brand new and okay. everything was possible. Um, what is the correlate now for you as a, as a scientist in training? What is that sense of unlimited possibilities? Does it hold right now for you or has it tempered a bit? Um, I think that the possibilities are still unlimited. I mean, just the nature of stem cells themselves, they can become any of the over 200 cell types in the body. That is fascinating. The challenge is trying to make them a particular cell type and ignoring every other possible lineage. So really in trying to do this, we're using all of the you know, knowledge that we have from developmental biology on how these beta cells actually form in utero and applying that in a dish. So we're taking different growth factors and different media and supplying it to these cells, basically trying to convince them to go down one particular lineage. So it's really, to me, it's fascinating that we could potentially control these cells to that much of a fine-tuned procedure. But it's still, again, very challenging. You'll see in the literature that everyone is trying to do this because it is, you know, it's a huge problem that everyone is trying to solve with the number of people that are actually living with type 1 diabetes. We have the potential to make a huge impact if we can get this to work properly. And to me, that is that is fascinating. That amount of effect that you could have in someone's life and someone's family's life is unimaginable. It's to me, it's still open. Like the sky is just the beginning. It's not the limit as far as I'm concerned. Mm. So I'm fortunate to be in a lab where I can have these radical ideas and try to figure out if it will work, you know, just trying different things and making and seeing what's going to happen. And hopefully the goal is, you know, at some point we will find that thing or it's possibly not going to be one thing. It's going to be multiple things so that we can reach out to multiple people. Everyone is different, even though they are living with diabetes, type one, type two, there are different people that we can reach and there's lots of space for people in the field. Mm. 
So definitely your passion is super evident. And, you know, I think that's part of the reason that both Dalen and I got into the stem cell field too, is, you know, you can see the application, you can really, really see the power of these cells. So it's definitely an exciting time to be a stem cell biologist. So you're in the middle of your PhD training right now. And as yeah. somebody who finished a PhD not too long ago, it can still be a bit of a slog towards the end, even if you are super passionate about it, right? So Dalen is basking in the glow of being a PI. So maybe he's a little bit removed <laughs> from the life stress of being a PhD, right? Uh, so, you know, if you got like, you know what I mean? Maybe not. I mean, yeah. PIs have their own stresses too. Wrong, for sure. You know, PhD students, we have to like publish, we have to, you know, write theses, we have to go to committee meetings, defense, and, you know, there's like an uncertainty in the process, right? And it can be kind of nerve wracking, you know? So I found it important to have an outlet to get rid of stress during your PhD. And for me, it was exercise. And I think yeah. you, were a, you were a varsity athlete, right? So it seems yes, like that. I was. So that might be the case for you too. And we'll get around to that. But through it all, you know, is it still fun for you? Are you, you know, still having a lot of fun, you know, being paid to do cool science? And how has the graduate school experience been for you? And if you had to give a little bit of advice to, to new PhD students at UBC or elsewhere, what would it be? Um, it definitely is challenging to be a PhD student. I think anything in life that is worthwhile is challenging and you have to um, you have to love what you do. That is very key. If you love what you do, then it's really not work. But at the same time, you know, it can take a toll on you. My biggest advice that I always used to give, even when I did my master's, was I told people, if you are interested in research, you know, try to insert yourself in areas where you can learn a little bit so you don't feel like you have that commitment to being in a PhD program. So if you're an undergraduate student, go to co-op, you know, volunteer in a PI's lab, wash the dishes in the lab just so you can see what's going on. If you can't stand to be in the lab at just with that minimal amount of work, you probably might not want to spend a lot of time doing research as a postgraduate student. And the other thing that I would say to people, if they do think they want to do a PhD, you most places you do start with your master's so that you can really get a sense of what that research is going to be like. And you know what you think you're going to study may not actually be what you end up studying, but you learn how to learn you learn how to design experiments. You learn different things that you can apply even if you don't go down the route of becoming a PhD student. So really it's making sure that you understand the why. Yeah, so my uh, greatest advice would be to expose yourself to numerous opportunities just to get a sense of what you like and what you think you like so that you are better informed before going into such a situation that requires a lot of commitment, dedication, and time to pursue uh, a degree. Yeah, we talk about uh, the dedication it takes, and you know we're focused, the three of us, on the healthcare space. But in terms of existential threats, you really just have to turn on the news nowadays to see that climate change is rating really high, and it's going to take a whole generation of dedication and brilliance and effort from the young physical, chemical, electrical engineers, uh, they're going to have to dig us out of that hole that uh, our forefathers dug for us. So what do you see as the greatest existential threat to our health and well-being? And how do you think we're going to use cell-based therapies as our, our saviors, so to speak? Uh, I think the biggest issue is 
too much information that has led to misinformation. In the day and age of Google, everyone Googles whatever they think their problems are and finds a solution or you know, what's so wrong. And for me, in the field of biomedical engineering, you know, it goes down to breaking down little bits and pieces of the process that I'm trying to develop. And I like sort of that analytical process of trying to break things down and showing people the information and, you know, trying to make sure that they have the right information as opposed to just, you know, freaking out about everything that they see on the web. That is a huge problem. So Priya, coming back to your research and your work, it's focused on, you know, a really important application of stem cell biology, right? And as we talked about, making insulin-producing cells to treat type 1 diabetes. So, you know, there's folks around the world who are wor working on, like, some aspect of this. You know, the first person that comes to mind is Doug Melton over at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, for example. And there's, uh, you know, a bunch of biotech startups that are starting to use stem cell-derived beta cells for transplantation purposes, too. Viacite, for example. So I know there's, like, immaturity with these cells, which is the case for a ton of other stem cell derived cell types, right? It seems like, you know, whatever cell type you make from iPSCs has this issue of immaturity. But how close are we to actually using these cells for clinical therapy? And do you think these cells are ultimately going to replace the, the insulin pump anytime soon? So where are we when it comes to actually using these stem cell derived beta cells as a therapy for treating diabetes? So you do bring up a great question. Um, so right now, like you said, there is only one current phase one, two clinical trial that is underway and that's being conducted by Viacite. And we are here in Vancouver, one of the centers involved in this multi-center cohort. So with the development of these cell types, we can take these cells to different stages. And in the clinical trial currently, what is being uh, implanted into patients are the progenitor cells. So basically, they can become any cell type that is found in the pancreas. But, you know, a lot of people are also working towards differentiating these cells to later stages so that they are more like beta cells. And like you've said, the challenge is like we're still getting closer to what the native beta cell looks like in the island but they're still more immature. So at that point, we don't see the same kinetics that we would see with glucose-stimulated insulin secretion. And essentially all that is, is in your body, typically when you have your meal, you know, glucose goes up, your beta cells will sense that glucose has gone up and then it will release insulin in response to that to lower the blood sugar levels back into a point where it is normal. At this point, a lot of the cell types that are being made from these differentiation protocols are immature beta cells because they don't have some of the key markers that we would associate with mature beta cells. Although we're seeing results that demonstrate that they are able to release insulin in response to a high glucose challenge. In terms of um, how soon the therapy will be ready for application, it really would be a little bit naive of me to think that we're ready to go in a couple of years. Definitely, we are going to get a lot of useful information from the clinical trials that are currently underway as to how these cells 
are in terms of efficacy and in terms of safety. So that's going to be really key and is going to help guide the rest of the research in either making these progenitor cells or making these immature beta cells. So we've, I have to say, we've come a very long way from just using insulin injections, but we still definitely will have more to do in terms of the research to make sure that we are generating something that is near beta cell-like or is basically a bona fide beta cell that we can put into patients. And my vision is that we will not need to have multiple daily injections of insulin anymore. That's the ultimate goal. Because if you just think about it from the standpoint of the person that is living with type 1 diabetes, they typically need to be checking their blood glucose levels constantly throughout the day. They have to inject themselves with multiple daily insulin injections, and they need to make sure that they properly dose their insulin injections so that they're not giving themselves too much insulin, that they get to dangerous blood sugar levels and go either into a coma or potentially die because of the hypoglycemia or not delivering enough insulin to themselves that they remain hyperglycemic and there are other complications that are associated with chronic hyperglycemia. Yeah, but it's so exciting, isn't it, guys? I mean, it oh, is. so cool. When I was just 20 years now when I first was introduced to these cells, and this is what we were all imagining. We we're all imagining yeah. the cells and in the trials. And you said it, you know, this whatever happens, we're gonna get a lot of useful information from these this first wave of trials, the first in man and human trials that we're getting data back from now. But you know, it, it illustrates this kind of second wave they're at, you know. Uh, we just mentioned Biocyte and Doug Mountain. And I think this second wave is embodied in large part by the kind of the cashing in phase, right? Doug Mountain cashed in on SEMA. A lot of these mm -hmm. big deal uh, researchers have formed these companies that have amazing valuations and the hundreds of millions of dollars are being sold and they're getting paid and they're buying their little islands. Good for them. Okay. <laughs> Part of the landscape now, right? It's that is a great point. And a lot of big pharma companies are seeing the potential of replacement therapy. And so they are investing into all of these companies. You know, they're, they're responsible for selling a lot of these insulin injections, but they know that there is so much potential that is in these stem cell derived products that they're very much interested in all of these different researchers and the startups that are coming from of all these research is it's it's amazing like it's a fascinating and beautiful time to be doing stem cell research and to be working in the diabetes field yeah and so i think now with that being a part of the landscape as a student you know maybe the the there's this presumption or hope at least that your innovation is going to find a place in the marketplace, and 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 it and it reminds me a bit of when I was leaving college. It was the whole dot com. Everything was dot com, dot com, dot com, and people would say, "I'm going to go into dot com because dot com is where the money is." And I'm wondering, do you think that scientists in training now these days are getting into stem cells because they're like, "That's where the IPOs are going to be." Because, um, I mean, if so, I've got some sad news for them and some sobering reality. But <laughs> is that part of the motivation now? Is it like, yeah, you know, stem cells, that's where the money's at? Or is it is it equal parts fascination and passion and and also the kind of like, you know, the economic element there? Yeah, I think if you are going into stem cells just because you think it's going to be a cash cow, you like you said, you're going to be sadly, <laughs> sadly mistaken. <laughs> On that, uh, 
I think for myself and just the scientists that I do associate with, it's about the passion, the passion for the cause on just trying to do something that could have a monumental impact on the community, be it the family. If you think about the, the country as a whole and the economics, a lot of money is being spent into diabetes management. We have the potential to really just give a product, a potential product that could lower the burden on the country, on the community, and on the families. I think that is number one. The families and the patients that are living with type 1 diabetes mm. are the primary goal of this research. Mm. So speaking of innovative new approaches for, you know, clinical translation, you're at a great place for just that, you know, you're at UBC and you're a grad student at the bi in the biomedical engineering program at the University of British Columbia, just down the road from stem cell tech. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it seems like it's a pretty new program, you know, your PhD program, but it seems like it's growing pretty fast, right? We actually actually just had Dr. Peter Zanster on the show, who's I think the director of the UBC bioengineering program. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and I remember him talking about UBC and the overall, you know, collegiality of Canadian scientists. So is that true? Are Canadian scientists and people at UBC actually as friendly as Dr. Zanser says? And so what made you actually pick UBC for your training? So I, like you said before, I came from SFU and, you, you know, UBC and SFU are the two main universities that are here in the lower mainland. So it's like, you know, there's a rivalry between two universities. And when I went to UBC, everyone from SFU said I sold myself to the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, UBC, and especially the School of Biomedical Engineering, is a great environment for research and science. They have top-tier scientists in PI. They're recruiting even more now with the School of Biomedical Engineering. And what I love the most is the potential for growth and the collaboration that happens, not just between the professors at UBC, but also there are a lot of relationships that are established between UBC and industry partners. So like you said, for example, we've got stem cell, uh, stem cell technologies that's right in our backyard. So they're always trying to give back to the uh, to the advancement of science at UBC and making sure that you know they can support in any way that they can. And we are very fortunate to have you know the technical advice from them. We've had a lot of people from my lab that have actually moved to stem cell technologies and were you know instrumental in helping with the development of different kits. So I think just the potential for different collaborations is amazing because with science, Collaboration is key. You cannot do anything on your own. It doesn't matter how much of an expert you are. There's going to be some question that you need answered in a way or using a technique that you know nothing about. And that's going to be someone that's in the chemistry department thinks about this and is like, oh, I could do this in a snap or someone in the electrical engineering department. We have had so many of these kinds of collaborations on techniques that you would not typically sort of think to use from our standpoint. And that's been really key in furthering the research and answering all of these questions because it's, it's a huge question that we are trying to answer in the lab. 
So Priya, you uh, <clears throat> you said you uh, were trained at SFU oh. and then sold your soul, but yeah, you're really <laughs> your roots. And we want to talk about your roots. <laughs> They're uh, Port Harcourt, Nigeria. Represent. Um, but yeah. you have you have been in Canada for a while. You're at SFU and now you're at UBC. Before that, you were in Alberta, actually. So you've been there for like a decade. Um, yeah. And here we are, you know, in this interview. It's me. I'm of Caribbean descent, although you wouldn't know to look at me. A ruined Indian descent. And we're interviewing our Nigerian bioengineer in training. What a world, yeah. right? So sadly, I'll say, though, this is a bit of a fluke in the STEM fields in the U.S. where black and brown and female exclusion, it's well doc documented and the norm, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., at least, is there any of that in, in B.C., in British Columbia? Uh, if so or if not, do you, do you consider the climate, you know, that, like I said, that kind of exclusive climate in the U.S. as an obstacle to you ever coming across the border to work here? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, typically in science, it's just what it has been that you see sort of the white old male is the PI. But I think in this day and age in BC and in Canada, there is a lot of effort to be made to include everyone in the research. So I am in a lab that actually has a lot of women. So <laughs> I don't see that. But going to other labs or other institutions, I can see that the demographic is always skewed to one end. But a lot of PIs are very aware of what the situation was and are making, you know, significant efforts to make sure that they are representing everyone that, you know, any little kid would see. That's a big thing. I never, when it comes to representation, because I grew up in Nigeria, that wasn't a thing. Like I saw myself in everyone. I could be anything. And I grew up in a family where I could be anything. I'm in a family of overachievers and my parents raised us like that. So coming to Canada, I didn't necessarily, I wasn't aware of a lot of the issues that came with, you know, lack of representation until I got a little bit older and started having friends that had kids and their kids could not think of what they could do because they didn't see themselves on TV and they didn't see themselves when they went to the doctor or when they went to a class. So that really opened up my eyes to a lot of the issues that come from diversification or lack of diversification. So wherever I go, I've been fortunate enough that the senior personnel are also aware of these issues and are trying to do something about it even actively recruiting people that would be, you know, representative of the population at large, as opposed to just what you would typically expect to see, especially in science. And when it comes to kids, I, I absolutely love to tell kids that they can be anything that they want to be, regardless of who they are, what they look like, what gender they are. The, the sky is the starting point for everyone. And I always try to make that known. But for sure, it is a problem when it, it we're talking about women in science. There's still lower numbers, but it's getting better. FYI, Priya, just letting you know, I got a lab filled with women. Only, almost all <laughs> women. All right? So just keep, nice. keep me in mind. Keep me in mind over here. I work well with <laughs> women, and they, they work well 
in the lab here, and I depend on We're them. awesome in general. <laughs> agree, agree. So Priya, I think we do, I agree with you. I think we do have a long way to go when it comes to equal representation, but you know, it seems like you're definitely doing your part. Um, speaking of your roots, you know, I read that you were a varsity track athlete back in the day when you were at Simon Fraser, and it's something I, I mentioned at the top of the interview. So I, I actually yeah. used to tr run track too back in high school, but I was obviously nowhere near your level, which got me out of track really quick. Okay, so you know, but I, I think to the to the lay public, to the general public, there's sometimes this misconception that scientists, you know, have to look a certain way, like we're, what we were just talking about, right? Yeah. That we have to like look a certain way, or that in general we're just like unathletic nerds, right? Something I yeah. totally disagree with. Hmm. And in fact, I've actually met a lot of talented scientists who are also really talented athletes. And the famous yeah. example in the stem cell field is, you know, Shinya Yamanaka himself, who's a marathon runner, right? So yeah. as someone who's a talented athlete and also a budding stem cell biologist, what parallels have you seen between the two fields? And how has athletics helped shape you as a scientist? Oh, athletics. Well, I, actually, it's a funny story how I got into doing a lot of sports. My sister is also uh, an athlete, but she is way better than I am because she was on the national team and went to all of these different uh, um, international meets. Wow. But for that, <laughs> yeah, I know. We used to have a lot of competitions, but apparently my medals were not good enough. So. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no, being an athlete requires a lot of dedication and a lot of commitment. So, you know, to excel in athletics, you do need talent, but talent will only get you so far. Like talent will get you into the door. And then it's what you do after you get to that point that will really determine your greatness. So you need to go to practice when you don't feel like going to practice. You need to show up when it's raining, when it's snowing, you need to show up. So that is something that has really been instrumental in the way that I deal with my science is you have to show up no matter what. If the experiment fails and you've spent six months doing this thing that you thought would absolutely work and you feel absolutely drained, you know, you know, stay down for just a split second, accept that something went wrong, and then stand up and show up again. Because in science, a lot of the times your experiments will go wrong, but you need to continue and just show up. Showing up, that's half the battle. And uh, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's what you do next that's, that's uh, instrumental to your success. Mm -hmm. I remember being in grad school though, to be honest, and I was just trying to stay afloat, you know, thinking about the next mm -hmm. thing, the next result the next paper, mm. then came the degree. And it's like, okay, I got to get a postdoc. See to my pants. Mm. <laughs> but uh, I feel like I'm talking. I know Arun is not that. Arun has had a plan since he came out. out the world. Oh, come on, stop. <laughs> and stop. Uh, I feel like you with a family of overachievers, you've got a, you've got a, a roadmap. Um, but maybe not. Are you got a roadmap or are you just surviving? If you've made a plan, which I'm guessing you have, do you aspire to go along this more conventional academic path or do you have something else in mind? I aspire not to go down the academic path. Hmm. I, um, I'm fortunate enough that I know what I don't want to do and not necessarily what I do want to do because there is so much outside of academia that I could do with my degree. 
And it's becoming more evident in this day and age. I think when I first did my master's, that was the only route that I was aware of is, okay, you do your master's, you do your PhD, postdoc, and then you start applying for tenure track positions. Uh, while I love to teach, I love to educate people. You can't get me to shut up about my research if you ask hmm. me about it. I don't see myself in a classroom as a professor that is, you know, making up a curriculum for students. That's just not something that I've ever felt that I want to do. I'm not passionate about it. And I could always tell my PIs that were passionate about teaching me in the classroom versus the ones that just showed up to teach me because they had to teach me. So I know for sure that I would not want to be that person to someone else that is learning because that's one of the turning points for some people where they will stick with science or go elsewhere. Not necessarily, not necessarily academia, but just science in general because of the way they were taught. So I am open to a lot of things except for academia. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. At least you're totally honest with it. And I think it's great, you know, and these days, especially there's, and we've talked to so many other students who are thinking about the same thing, right? You know, they definitely don't want to go into academia. And that's something that's different from like 20, 30 years ago. And it's totally fine. Oh, and the it's, exciting, it's liberating. You know. I mean, to say I don't want to go into academia, then you got to figure it out. If you say I do want to go into academia or I'm willing, then you kind of have to navigate that path, which can be really punishing. So I have to yeah. say it's a, it must be liberating to be like, nah. -uh. <laughs> yes, no. it is. Yes, it is. More power to you for sure. So, <laughs> so Priya, we're actually coming to the end of the interview. And so we're going to ask you a couple of science peripheral questions. You know, I'll start yeah. off. So when it comes to a great book that you've read recently, a book that doesn't necessarily have to be a science book, what, what has it been? And you know, what was it? And what was so awesome about it? Okay. So for books, I'm actually really bad because once I start reading a book, I kind of get distracted and don't do anything else. So <laughs> I haven't read a lot of books lately just for that. But I uh, do listen to a lot of podcasts. I am obsessed with true crime podcasts. Mm -hmm. So there's one that is called Serial Killers. I absolutely love it. It just goes cool. through. <laughs> Pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. It has no reflection on my education <laughs> or my research whatsoever. But it, to me, it's just fascinating, the different stories across time. You know, they tell you between different periods, you know, decades to centuries, and these different serial killers and what they did and how they sort of evolved. It's fascinating to me. I've got lots of them. If anyone needs suggestions for a true crime <laughs> podcast, they can hit me up. <laughs> All right. But guys, please remember, first listen to the Stem Cell Podcast, then mm -hmm. you can listen to anything that you want. Okay? All right. Exactly. That's my favorite one, too. In between science <laughs> <Thank> podcasts. Priya, <you. laughs> um, that's great. We'll have a listen uh, after we listen again to every single podcast we've ever recorded, just, you know, by way of review, mm -hmm. which is what I like to do weekly. Um, but we're going to mm -hmm. do fill in the blanks now. First, the biggest thing in the stem cell field right now is... Uh, organoids. There are lots of different researchers working on different types of organoids. You got liver, you got islets, you got neural. So organoids are a big thing in stem cell field. Organoids. We hear about them every episode. Next, I would never have gotten to this point in my career 
early though it is without uh it takes a village let's see let's go down the list god because seriously it takes grace to do a lot of things and I have a lot of great mentors. So Tim is an awesome mentor. Jamie Perret is a great mentor. You know, you want someone that you can, that challenges you with what you're doing and pushes you to be better than you think that you already are. Um, I have great lab mates and I'm in a great environment that really fosters growth. And I also have a great network of friends that are like-minded, ambitious, and really push you you know, when you need to be pushed and let you be when you need to relax and also just have fun in general. That's a strong village you got there, Priya. I'm a bit oh, envious. Oh, yes. You need a village. <laughs> you definitely need a village. <laughs> Next, when it comes to blank, I am pretty much useless. Ah, uh, When it comes to giving directions in the conventional sense, hmm. So I can tell you how to get from A to B by telling you you need to go straight, see the White House, turn left, look for the tree, and then, you know, turn right. But if you needed me to say, go to this street and then turn left on that street, I would not be able to give you directions to save your life. <laughs> wow. I would love to take some directions. I feel like it'd be fun. It'd be like a scavenger hunt. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Even and when people give me directions, I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's not do that. Well, we have Google Maps always is a good news. <laughs> Finally, if the lab catches fire and I have a chance to grab one thing on the way out, it is. It is. Can I pick two? I don't know. The lab's on fire, but by all means, go for it. <laughs> hurry, hurry. They're, they're, they're side by side. I would take, I would take the time capsule because my data is on there, and I would take the nuclear counter. It's a cell counting device that is automated, and it has saved my life. Wow. Yes. No more hemocytometers. I'm telling you. That's Can't good. Can't go back. That is good. <laughs> Thinking like a grad student, where nothing is replaceable, right? No budget. A PI would be like, I could get another one. You're like, no, 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 no. That counter's coming with me. Yes, it is my favorite toy. I tell everyone that. Must get that. <laughs> well, Priya Iwarima, this has been a really fun chat. Thanks so much for joining us and, uh, you know, giving us a little bit of insight into the student experience. Uh, we're really excited to see what you do next, and we'll have to have you on the show. When you come out with your big accolade, be it a paper, even the PhD, come back and tell us about it, will you? Awesome. Thank you for having me. This was amazing. That brings us to the end of this show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com to give us feedback or to suggest guests. We love our young guests. If you've got an idea or if you want to be a guest yourself as a listener, please submit yourself. You know, we got to get a more rounded perspective here. And we're encouraging all to submit their names. Until the next episode, guys, stay tuned. Thanks for listening.